0: Welcome to Episode 9 of Sample Excavator. I'm your host, Angelo Robledo, a sample archaeologist, if you will, digging through sample and production history to piece together the stories behind the world's biggest records. The story today is a bit more known than most of the stories we've looked at thus far, but enough people aren't aware of it, particularly in my generation, that covering it is a must. The story is also quite lengthy, so this episode will be split into two parts. The sound we will be tracking for this season one finale is the genius of Niall Rogers, guitarist, producer, songwriter, and musical superstar that co-founded the band Chic with bassist Bernard Edwards. He has also produced or written for David Bowie, Madonna, Duran Duran, In Excess, Christina Aguilera, and dozens of others. While his music is loosely the sound we are tracking, the story that I'll tell is much broader than that. This will be our first two-part episode, thanks to a comment from my friend Layla that this story was too important to cut short in order to fit it into one episode. Even then, these last two episodes will be a bit lengthy. It's the season finale, so I figured I'd go bigger, or go home. Part one, which is what you're listening to right now, will cover where Sheik's sound came from in the broader context of music history. And the first uses of their sounds to push hip hop into the mainstream, roughly spanning 1968 to 1980. Because of this, Part 1 will be more focused on narrative and history with less music than previous episodes. But this history and narrative is vital to understand Part 2, which will explore Rogers' continued impact into pop from the 80s to today, focusing on Rogers' impact in the reemergence of funk in pop and EDM through his work on Daft Punk's multi Grammy winning 2013 album Random Access Memories. Part 2 make up for the light music load in this episode, so don't worry. Before we get into Now Rogers himself, we need to contextualize the music culture of the early to mid-20th century. Not to distill the history of music into two podcast episodes, or worse, a few paragraphs, but I want to point out a trend that has permeated Western popular music for the past century and a half. It's a trend that I've highlighted multiple times throughout this series, but never before have I explained it with this much depth. Slave songs of the 1800s, marked by a fusion of West African drums and rhythms with the call-and-response style from church hymns, birthed blues and ragtime in New Orleans in the early 1900s. This eventually grew from Prohibition-era clubs to big band jazz orchestras, led by band leaders like Duke Ellington in the 1920s. Swing was zeroed in on as a music and dance genre as white artists and band leaders took notice and started commercializing the genre. Jazz, which epitomizes counterculture and extreme musicianship, was pushed away from this commercialization towards a new art form called bebop, which shrunk the big band groups into small combos of faster-paced rhythm and improvisation. Meanwhile, in Nazi-occupied Paris, this music was prohibited as part of German agenda to quell American and Black cultural influence in their fascist regime. They should have realized that prohibiting something makes people want it more, as French youth saw illegally importing and listening to this type of music as an act of resistance, creating the first discotheques. Back in the U.S. after the war, these smaller combos eventually embraced radical new innovations in music technology, like the electric guitar, developing high-energy rhythm bands. In 1949, Billboard renamed their quote-unquote race records chart to rhythm and blues or R&B to encapsulate and ultimately segregate this new black sound emerging from the previously white co-opted swing. This, of course, was eventually co-opted itself to create rock and roll, blatantly repackaging songs and sounds developed by artists like Big Mama Thornton for white audiences through Elvis in the 1950s. Again, artists of color developed a new niche in the underground, combining blues and gospel to create doo-wop and soul, and furthering the rhythm-forward improvisation of bebop in order to make funk. Barry Gordy in the Motor City of Detroit figured out how to commercialize all of this and effectively own the Billboard charts birthing Hitsville, USA out of his house, and with it, the Motortown record label, or Motown for short. Motown kept everything in-house, treating music production like an assembly line of writing, arranging, recording, and producing. This included using one house band, the Funk Brothers, for the instrumentals on all tracks for the recording artists. Regardless of whether or not the artist was Stevie Wonder, The Supremes, Marvin Gaye, The Four Tops, The Temptations, Smokey Robinson, or anyone else in the Motown lineup, the Funk Brothers provided the groove. This allowed Motown to have a cohesive sound and technically meant that the Funk Brothers performed on more Billboard number 1 hit records than the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Elvis Presley, and the Beach Boys combined between the years of 1959 and 1972, an impressive feat for a band few people today are aware of. Motown had its hand in every subgenre of black music at the time, from R&B and funk to soul and gospel. This trend of artists in an oppressed minority making subversive, quote-unquote, struggle music, that music being co-opted and commercialized by the white mainstream, which then pushes minority artists to create new underground genres, is the core of Western music. This trend does not stop with Motown by any means. In fact, it's the 20 years after the prominence of Motown that demonstrates this trend better than ever before, because of the dramatically better documentation of these trends at this time. Despite the fact that an entire podcast series could be done on this trend and the brief history of music I just went over, our story actually starts in 1968, when everything simultaneously converged in some areas and diverged in others, as music was pushed into the new age. In 1968, Led Zeppelin recorded and released their debut album, which we discussed way back in episode 2 of this podcast, With this album, they pushed the pop and psychedelic rock of the 60s into the classic rock hard era of the 70s and 80s. While the blues influences of rock persisted at first, this eventually fell away, pushing rock further away from its black roots than ever before. Also in 1968, Francis Grasso DJed for the first time in New York City. He performed at Salvation 2, a nightclub in the village in Manhattan. Over the next few years, he would be instrumental in the success and development of the nightclub scene, Combining the counterculture atmosphere of French discotheques with the best dance music across any genre, he cultivated a party experience like no other, championed by the black gay community newly emboldened by the success of the Stonewall Riots in 1969. Two things made Grasso and the eventual DJ profession unique. The first was his music choice. This wasn't a jazz hall or a rock tavern. It was a dance hall and any music from any genre was welcome as long as it got people to move. The second unique skill he had was to blend and mix the songs, not just fading one out and bringing the next one in. He had an ear for the drums and could hold a mix for an extended period of time, creating non-stop energy from sundown to sunup. As a DJ, he was not simply a human jukebox playing requests or top 40 hits, Grasso took ownership of the art form as performance, guiding the audience through a narrative of dance and music. This new conception of the DJ spread throughout other nightclubs in the village, with new DJs like Steve Mancuso and Nicky Siano continuing Grasso's musical traditions. This meant The Temptations, Chicago, James Brown, The Rolling Stones, and Carlos Santana were all fair game. Songs like Get Ready by Rare Earth or Long Train Runnin' by the Doobie Brothers became staples of this proto-disco era. This would be combined with some incredibly unknown deep cuts from around the world, including African, Latin, and reggae music. The drums and rhythms gathered from these international records would influence music for decades to come, exemplified in this record by the band Babe Ruth, entitled The Mexican, which has been sampled hundreds of times in the subsequent decades. Moving past being part of black queer culture, discos became more mainstream in the gay community in general before incorporating an increasing number of cishet patrons, though still largely underground in that they were ignored by the record companies. By the mid-1970s, discos exploded in New York, with some 200 nightclubs operating across the five boroughs. As soon as one DJ found a new deep cut to use in their set, a race was started for other DJs to find it as well. This meant a spike in record sales for Motown and Soul Records that had been dormant for a decade or for songs never promoted as singles, like Gloria Gaynor's 1973 song, Never Can Say Goodbye, which charted successfully not because of radio play, but simply because it had club appeal. Since the black community pioneered this disco scene, black artists like Gloria Gaynor and Niall Rogers became the first to start tailoring their music towards this club scene. Nile Rogers and his bassist, Bernard Edwards, started the Big Apple Band at this time, playing a funk-rock-soul fusion. He would later change the name of the band to Chic, but we're not quite there yet. Just know that he starts to become active in the industry at this time of disco in 1975. At the same time, DJs wanted songs to be longer so that they had more time to mix, loop, and groove. This led DJ Tom Moulton to literally cut and paste together multiple tapes of a single song to make an extended edit, pushing a three-minute radio cut of a song to be seven minutes long. He eventually took this into the studio, pressing these remixes onto 45s and distributing them to DJs. One day, when out of blank 45s, he pressed one of his 7-minute edits onto a full 12-inch vinyl, stretching the grooves to take up more space, giving the songs much more bass and louder drums. Record companies started noticing these trends and purposely released higher-energy songs on 12-inch records by themselves, and thus, the 12-inch single was born. This became DJ Gold, opening up more technical opportunities for DJing. By 1976, record companies had fully come to realize the power of the disco and started analyzing what all of these dance tracks across all of those genres had in common. They synthesized this into a true disco genre, manufacturing disco hits by catering directly to the club scene, which is how the theme of wide musical variety started by Francis Grosso turned into the manufactured repetitiveness that led to the downfall of disco itself. The epitome of this synthesis was the "quote unquote" four-on-the-floor drum pattern, which arguably originates with the 1973 song "The Love I Lost" by Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, a soul vocal group based out of Philadelphia.
1: The love I lost.
0: This drum pattern is based around a loud kick drum on every quarter note and usually accompanied by straight 16th note hi-hats on repeat. This is opposed to the kick drums on rock and soul music, which are usually just on the one and the three and even further away from the jazz and funk drum lines, which are generally accented on the two and the four, following a pattern of sporadic syncopation. Virtually every disco song contains this drum pattern, because it's literally what defines disco. You have to remember that not only did the dancers love this pattern, but DJs loved it as well. If every single song has the exact same kick drum and hi-hat pattern, it becomes much easier to blend and mix the songs. As part of the Philadelphia International label, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes were at the forefront of a subgenre called Philadelphia Soul that balanced pop vocals with upbeat funk. This was in contrast with the Southern Soul in Memphis on the Stax label or the funk-rock fusion happening in Chicago. The Blue Notes were just vocalists, however, and the song was originally written as a ballad. Credit for the the four-on-the-floor drum pattern actually needs to go to Earl Young, the studio drummer for the Philadelphia International House Band entitled Mother-Father-Sister-Brother, or MFSB. MFSB pioneered what would become the disco genre with their song The Sound of Philly, or T-SOP, which became the theme song for Soul Train, which debuted in late 1971. Earl Young would take his four-on-the-floor style to his next project, The Tramps, Arguably the first group assembled with the purpose of being a disco band making disco music. Thus starts the commercialization of disco. It was no longer soul, R&B, funk, and rock artists whose music happens to be used in discos. Small independent labels like Sasol started producing this synthesized disco music, focusing on getting record sales through club play, not radio play. Obviously, no discussion of the development of disco is complete without talking about the queen herself, Donna Summer. Like her contemporaries, she started just as a soul singer, but quickly adopted proto-disco instrumentation with her Giorgio Moroder-produced hit, Love to Love You Baby, in 1975, which features that four-on-the-floor drum pattern, though it is still a tad slower and funkier than what disco would become. Less than a year later, she comes back with a disco album full stop. The very first seconds of the first song on her Love Trilogy album, entitled Try Me, I Know We Can Make It, tells you all you need to know with that pulsating quarter note bass drum that is repetitive but irresistible. The queen of disco has arrived, and she's here to stay. So far, I've set up a powder keg ready to explode with disco brewing in the underground for almost a decade, ready to pop into the mainstream. Two things happened in 1977 back-to-back that blew up this keg, marking the beginning of the end of disco. First, Studio 54 opened in New York, becoming unbelievably exclusive with a clientele that was incomprehensibly star-studded. They got off to a bang shortly after they opened. Their DJ, Richie Casco, was the first DJ to play Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive, which became the first and last song ever awarded a Grammy for Best Disco Recording. To this day, it's frequently cited as the best disco or best dance song of all time. The second thing that happened in 1977 was the release of Saturday Night Fever, starring John Travolta, and featuring songs from the Bee Gees and the previously mentioned Tramps. The songs Stayin' Alive, Boogie Shoes, and Disco Inferno skyrocketed the soundtrack to be the single best-selling soundtrack of all time, certified 16 platinum in the US, and selling 54 million copies globally. Suddenly, disco wasn't just black or queer music, because, hey, look, Sylvester Stallone is at Studio 54, so it's open to anybody. Big record companies realized that disco was the future and started making their moves, pivoting from rock to dance music. Atlantic Records signed Nile Rodgers and his new band, Chic, in 1977, releasing their self-titled album to exceptional success, topping the club play charts and going top 10 with multiple singles. Ironically, they were denied entry to Studio 54 despite their music being played by the DJ, inspiring Rodgers to go home and write a song called F Off, directed at the club. This song was briefly called Freak Off, before the title Le Freak was settled upon for Chic's 1978 album. Le Freak and the Nile Rodgers sound became synonymous with the disco genre. Uh-huh. In 1978, big record companies and mainstream artists were playing catch-up to Donna Summer and her disco contemporaries like Gloria Gaynor, Double Exposure, Esther Phillips, and Loliata Holloway. Rod Stewart, Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, and the Rolling Stones all attempted disco-sounding records, trying to get back to the blues and funk roots they left behind in pursuit of rock. Atlantic Records wanted Nile Rodgers to write and produce disco tracks for these non-disco artists, but he worried about his artistic integrity, instead passing his songs onto other existing Philly Soul groups as they naturally transitioned to disco. To this end, Nile Rodgers wrote and produced the song We Are Family for Philly Soul vocal group Sister Sledge, which went on to go number two on Billboard, Stuck Behind Hot Stuff by Donna Summer. In 1979, however, now Rogers and Chic had their biggest record yet, Good Times. It became the best selling single in Atlantic Records history at the time and skyrocketed to number one on the Billboard charts. The bass laid down by Bernard Edwards is possibly the single most influential bassline in music history. By now, a clear line has been drawn between good, authentic disco music and bad disco. The influx of artists and labels into the genre who knew nothing about the history of disco led to the market being oversaturated with meaningless robotically manufactured songs. As white America took hold of the genre, the black youth who originated it a decade prior were pushed back into the underground to develop a new art form, continuing the cycle of musical innovation I discussed in the beginning. While the record labels started obsessing over the -the four-on-the-floor beat to the detriment of meaningful groove, a few disco DJs in the early 1970s noticed that executives were missing the point. Monotonous repetition of a kick drum is not the only way that makes people dance. They realized that there was something else intrinsic to the R&B, soul, and particularly funk records that made people dance. In the funk tradition, pioneered by James Brown, there would be a breakdown section somewhere in the song. This is a deviation from the driving groove where the bass and drums can do a quick fill, freestyle, or solo. These quick solos had higher energy and intensity than the surrounding song, and people like Bronx-raised DJ Cool Herc noticed these breakbeats as really driving the dancers onto the dance floor, particularly young bachelors who didn't necessarily have a partner to disco dance with. He initially tried to play only in the break of a series of songs one after another, However, most breaks are only 15 seconds, meaning he was switching records every 15 seconds. Eventually, he figured out how to lift the needle off of a record to play the break over and over again, guessing as to where to drop the needle to catch the beat. It was finicky, but he didn't really care. He was having fun, and the crowd loved it. Coming from Jamaica, he wanted to bring the sound system parties of the Caribbean to the U.S., building a massive wall of speakers wherever he performed. Elsewhere in the Bronx... Jamaican descendant Grandmaster Flash, used his electrician's training to help invent modern mixers as we know them today, with a crossfader, volume faders, and most importantly, his peekaboo system, which allowed him to preview the next song before playing it for the dance floor. This allowed him to use two copies of the same record to precisely time his loops, creating effortless mixes of funk breakdowns that could last hours. As disco was formed out of these funk bands, the breaks followed, often happening after a chorus and before a verse, deviating from the manufactured beat in a small moment of organic artistic freedom expressed by whatever house band was recording that day. So by the end of 1975, DJ Koolherk, Grandmaster Flash and eventually Avrika Bombata could play a disco record from the start, let the couples dance. Then when the break came, they would loop it with their peekaboo system and duplicate records. Suddenly, the young single kids would step off the wall to impress the room with their energetic freestyle, dancing to the breaks. These kids eventually were just called the break dancers, unsurprisingly, and b-boy and b-girl culture was formed. Each DJ took a different territory in the Bronx, setting up underground clubs separate from the discos where they could just play breakbeats all night long as dance battles happened on the floor, taking any available space from basements to abandoned warehouses, alleyways to empty basketball courts. They each had their own style. Cool Herc focused on having the biggest and loudest sound system and vocal effects. Grandmaster Flash pioneered and mastered what we now call turntablism with Grand Wizard Theodore, inventing scratching and the physical beatbox. African Mumbata, on the other hand, was all about the music selection. He traveled all over the world, seeking the craziest, most obscure breaks on the planet, no matter the genre. Eventually, all of these DJs ran into the same problem. Ten minutes of an instrumental break on loop is just as boring as disco is becoming. Again, Kool Herc turned to his Jamaican roots to find a solution. In the 1950s and 60s, a tradition in reggae music was formed called toasting, where the master of ceremonies, or MC, of a party would stand on the stage with the band and do a mixture of scatting, call and response, and riffing off of the crowd. Jamaican immigrants in the Bronx brought this with them, combining it with African-American vernacular English and an announcer style from radio called Jive Talk or Jive Rhyme, directly born out of a hip and urban persona early black radio hosts were expected to maintain on air in the 50s and 60s. So now, with the microphones added in, MCs were able to provide some poetic rhyming on top of a looped break, creating something new out of existing material. These breaks would become some of the most recognized and sampled in history, like Apache by the incredible Bongo Band. The seeds for sampling as we know it were planted right there and then, in the basement of DJ Kool Herc, somewhere in the Bronx, packed beyond maximum capacity with breakdancing teenagers. Each DJ had their own crew. DJ Cool Herc had the Herculoids, Grandmaster Flash had the Furious Five, and Africa Mumbata had the Sonic Soul Force. And they would have both rap and breakdance battles, playfully maintaining territory in the Bronx by training apprentices to find their own territory. From the scatting and rhyming came a largely nonsensical phrase for the type of parties these DJs were hosting, a hippity hop, or hip hop for short. Afrika Mbata envisioned a black cultural movement called the Zulu Nation after his visit to Africa in high school. He posited four branches of hip-hop culture, DJing, MCing, graffiti, and breakdancing. He hoped that the quasi-gang or crew identity fostered by the friendly competition between the three DJs would give black youth an outlet that kept them out of the actual violent gangs permeating the five boroughs or the hard drug use that was taking hold of the disco scene. So we're in June 1979. Good Times by Chic just came out. There's a considerable public backlash against disco, literally leading to a July 12th riot after radio DJs in Chicago organized a disco demolition derby to literally blow up crates of disco records that they hated. Michael Jackson releases his first solo album after departing Motown Records entitled Off the Wall. It will be looked back on as the last great disco album. While Off the Wall would prop up disco for another year or two, it was clear that the genre was fading out. What was happening in the Bronx with hip-hop was staying in the Bronx, however. It went half a decade without anyone else learning about it, copying it, or even reporting about it. But somehow New Jersey-raised, white, new-wave artist Debbie Harry of the band Blondie found out about it and joined the scene by meeting and befriending Fab Five Freddy, a graffiti artist and early hip-hop promoter. It was this same summer of 1979, when everything was blowing up with disco, that Blondie invites Niall Rogers himself to a party in a Bronx playground. It's there that Rogers saw hip-hop for the first time, witnessing DJs cut, loop, and scratch his song Good Times while MCs rapped over it. You know what? I'll just let him tell the story. It was like the end of
1: 1979, beginning of 1980. Um, th- this thing, this movement started to develop in New York City that I had become you know loosely aware of because of my friendship with um, with with Blondie, with uh, Debbie and Chris. And they said, hey now you gotta come up to a hip hop with me, which is what they called it. They said, a hip hop. And they would play the break to my song Good Times and they would just rap and rap and rap for hours and hours and hours. And I had never seen anything like that. I mean, you could I literally—I mean, the first time I saw it, they took me to a club. They took me to a high school in Queens, and then they took me to a spot in the Bronx. And all they played was one song, just over and over again. And it was just the breakdown to "Good Times." They would just go, "Good, good, 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 good time." Boom, boom.
0: A few months after that. After half a decade in the underground, the first hip hop song is recorded and released on September 16, 1979, interpolating the Good Times bassline to provide support for possibly the most influential and well known rap verse in history. I'm actually going to end this episode here. I apologize for the length, but I hope you realize how every thread of 20th century music history intertwined to create that one musical moment, the effects of which we are still experiencing today as hip hop surpasses rock and pop as the most listened to genre in America. I'm actually going to publish two separate playlists that correspond with this week's episode, one with proto-disco music and the other with actual music from the disco genre containing that unmistakable kick drum. Hopefully, this will allow you to appreciate the breadth of proto-disco DJs like Francis Grosso, while clearly contrasting it to the relative monotony of mainstream disco. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on your preferred podcast streaming service. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at idigitfirst, that's I-D-I-G-I-T-1-S-T, and the show at Sample Excavator on both platforms as well. Sample Excavator is researched and written by myself and produced by Guy Tannenbaum. The theme music was written and produced by David Ramos. Next week, we're going to pick up right where we left off with Rapper's Delight by The Sugarhill Gang examining how this record came to be through the genius of Sylvia Robinson at Sugar Hill Records. From there, we'll actually track Nile Rodgers' samples and production through his contributions to pop with artists like David Bowie, Madonna, Duran Duran, and Pitbull. And of course, I'll break down how the fall of disco gave birth to EDM, with Nile Rogers' samples still at the forefront of this digital revolution. So stay tuned next week for part two of this story, and to close out this inaugural season of Sample Excavator. Until then, keep on digging.
1: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.